This morning for the preaching of God's Word, we'll be looking at Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, that's page 857. If you're using a pew Bible, turn with me there if you are able. As we open up and study God's Word together. In our series through Daniel, we've currently been navigating uh, the choppy waters of the dreams and the visions that mark the second half of the book. Uh, But today we kind of get a reprieve of sorts. In this chapter we find one of the most beautiful and heartfelt prayers um, in all of Scripture. And it's only at the end of the prayer uh, do the prophecies continue. So while we're... So while definitely the prayer and the prophecy go together, the chapter goes together, um, we're going to split it up over two weeks. We're going to focus on the prayer this morning in verses 1 through 19, and then we'll turn next week to look more specifically to the answer of that prayer. That's because there we get the famous 70 weeks at the end of the chapter, Daniel's 70 weeks. So the prayer, Daniel chapter 9. Let's hear God's word. Let's read it together. Let's remember, I'm the speaker, but God himself, excuse me, I'm the reader, but God himself is the speaker. Daniel 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Hazarias, a descendant of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to the Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from Your commandments and rules. We have not listened to Your servants, the prophets, who spoke in Your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To You, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far, and all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. For we have rebelled against Him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in His laws, which He set before us by His servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed Your law and turned aside, refusing to obey Your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against Him. He has confirmed His words, which He spoke against us, and against our rulers who ruled us, by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that He has done, and we have not obeyed His voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought Your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and have made a name for Yourself as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all Your righteous acts, let Your anger and Your wrath turn away from Your city, Jerusalem, Your holy hill, Because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all those who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. 
For your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations in this city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not. For your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Amen. This is God's Word. Pray with me again. Father, we, like Daniel, also admit and acknowledge that you are the great and awesome God who keeps covenant with those who love you and who is the just repayer in judgment for those who hate you, for evildoers. And Lord, we acknowledge, though, that we all stumble in many ways. Father, we pray, though, for the sake of your church that bears your name, that you would send the Holy Spirit, even now, to instruct and convict our hearts with your word. We pray that you would vindicate your name among us. We pray that you would speak to us, Lord, even now. We pray not because we deserve it or we have earned it. Not because we are righteous, but we pray only through the righteousness that is offered and given to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, brethren, if we were to pinpoint one central theme that we've seen again and again and again through the first eight chapters of Daniel, undoubtedly, I believe, we would have to settle on the sovereignty of God. Just think back for a second to how the book opened. Chapter 1, verse 2. There we're told that it was the Lord who gave Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon in exile. The book starts out right away. Look, make sure you know who's in control. Make sure you know that, that God's people suffering under evil kings and evil kingdoms is not outside of His plan. It's not outside of His sovereignty. Of course, we see that in the stories through the first six chapters of Daniel as well. Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the great statue and all the kingdoms and God's kingdom that rules over them all and crushes them all. And the fiery furnace where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego demonstrate who is really sovereign over life and death. Same with Daniel in the lion's den. And we have King Nebuchadnezzar saying, oh, I've built all of these great things, but the Lord humbles him. Shows him who the real king is. And, of course, even Belshazzar, Belshazzar and the hand that appears, the writing on the wall, demonstrates who really reigns over the rise and fall of earthly kings and kingdoms. God is sovereign ruler. God is the one who orchestrates all the events of human history. And that's the main takeaway from each and every chapter. You can't read it any other way. I mean, even when we turn to the visions in chapter 7, remember, it was the four winds of heaven that stirred up the beast that terrorized the earth. And it was God's decree uh, that oversees the rise and the fall of the kings and nations in chapter 8. Even the little horn that persecutes God's people, he does so not because of his own power, we're told. In other words, I'm arguing that the central message of this book is really captured uh, by Nebuchadnezzar's words in chapter 4 where he says, God does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay His hand. God does what He wills. However, it's right when we acknowledge this, God's sovereign over human history, Right where we come to the grasp of this, maybe, the chapter 9 might feel a little bit out of place in some respect. The chapter opens, of course, with Daniel reading the prophet Jeremiah. He reads and he understands that God is going to restore Israel after 70 years in exile. And so in response to this, he offers this urgent, this heartfelt prayer, asking the Lord to do what He's promised to do. Why, brethren? 
does Daniel pray if God is absolutely sovereign? Why does Daniel take on sackcloth and ashes in fasting when he knows that God always does what he says he will do? God said 70 years are going to be restored. That's a done deal. Why then such a desperate prayer? Why take the time to fast? The question simply is, I think the best way of putting it, if God is sovereign, then why do we pray? This isn't just a question that Daniel had to wrestle with. It hits home close to us as well. We believe, we confess the scriptures when they teach that God is sovereign over salvation. God will ultimately save his elect. The names of the elect are written in the, found, uh, in, in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. There's no changing that. We know that we have been predestined to believe. Then why do we pray for the salvation of our friends who are outside of Christ and our loved ones? Isn't it already a done deal? Don't we believe that God is sovereign over the rise and fall of nations? Then, then why do we pray for our nation? Why do we say, God save the king, if we were British, I guess? <laughs> why do we pray for the world at large? Isn't what God decreed already going to happen and there's no changing that? Don't we believe that God is sovereign over our sanctification? He who began a good work will complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. Don't we believe, you know, it's not us that have to hold on to the end, that God holds us to the end? Right? That He preserves us from stumbling? Then why do we pray for what God has already promised and said, the work that I began in you, I will bring it to completion. And we believe God is sovereign and has promised to feed and clothe and provide us. Why do we take the time to stop and ask Him? Don't we believe Christ when He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it? So why do we pray so fervently for the growth and security of our church and the church at large? Well, brethren, this is where chapter 9 here in Daniel's prayer is instructive to us. The simple answer is that we pray not in spite of God being sovereign, but we pray precisely because He is sovereign. And with this prayer of Daniel here, it's recorded to show us the intimate connection between God's purposes in history and prayers of His people. In other words, in the midst of these prophecies and world events that God tells us is going to happen, we get a break in the action where the Lord shows us that prayer is the means. It is how God accomplishes His sovereign purposes in history. God delights to use the prayers of His people to bring about His will, both in redemptive history and in us personally as well. And that, brethren, is a tremendous encouragement to us. It shows us what, the, what a privilege prayer is that we get to participate in God's sovereign decree. But it also gives us great confidence because we know that when we pray according to His will, He will answer. And we will get what we ask. So I want us to focus most specifically on the prayer itself. And next week we're going to focus on its relation to Daniel, uh, the book of Daniel and all the end time events and everything. But today, I want to focus on this, the prayer itself, and I simply want to highlight a few reasons why we pray. I don't think that any of this is going to be new to you if you've, if you've spent any time in church, but it's a helpful reminder, and my prayer, my prayer, is that it will stir in you a renewed vigor and fervency uh, for prayer, and as you see how God uses it for His purposes. Five reasons why we pray from this chapter. Why do we pray? First reason, very simply, or I said it, we pray because God is sovereign. We pray because God is sovereign. If He wasn't sovereign, it would be like making a wish, right? Throwing a, throwing a penny into the well. Lord, I hope You can do this, but I'm really not sure. We pray because God is sovereign. Now, a few preliminary things as we dive into this prayer. I want you to look at this prayer as... 
as a model of a prayer, but also a model of a man. Uh, in one sense, a model of a man, it, uh, Sinclair Ferguson said here, this chapter shows us the secret of Daniel's youthful, usefulness in God's kingdom. We don't want to read the book of Daniel and wonder, how was Daniel able to stand so strong in the face of sin and persecution and temptation? How was he so used by God for the advancement of his purposes? Well, it's because he was a man of prayer. This shows us a little bit about who he was as a man. And it shows us that there's a direct connection between our usefulness, you, I hope I didn't say youthfulness, our usefulness in God's kingdom and who we are as a person of prayer. Robert Murray McShane famously said, what a man is before his knees, before God on his knees, is what a man is, that and nothing more. How was Daniel used? Well, he was a man of prayer. But it's not just a model of a man, it's also a model of a prayer. If we dissect this prayer, there's invocation, there's adoration, there's confession, um, there's petition. It's a heartfelt prayer. It's full of Scripture. It repeats God's promises back to him. It's aimed for the glory of God. It's it's like the, the Lord's Prayer. It's an excellent model for us to learn how we too are ought to pray. But with that in mind, again, what is it that fueled Daniel to pray? Well, I want you to see that it was the sovereignty of God. I mentioned this already, but the chapter opens with Daniel recognizing that God's prophecy through Jeremiah was about to take place. Darius the Mede was on the throne. A nation that had taken Judah into exile has been overthrown. Uh, So if... We were to read Jeremiah twenty five eleven. We would see that God said, after seventy years, He would punish the king of Babylon and restore Israel. Daniel's looking at this like, wait a second, Babylon's just been overthrown. The king's been been punished. Well, now this prophecy is about to be fulfilled, and that leads him to get on his knees and pray for the Lord to accomplish it. You see, just because God has decreed something in human history, just because God is sovereign over something in human history, just because He's even revealed it to us in human history, does not mean that we're just to sit around monitoring the news, waiting for the outcome. That's not faith. It disguises itself as faith. Oh, well, I believe the Word of God, and this is what's going to happen. But it's not faith. Because one aspect of true faith, one aspect of true faithfulness in Christian obedience is constantly praying for what God has already said would happen. That's what it means to pray according to His will. Think of it. Why do we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus? He's already said He's going to come. He's already said there's a specific day and an hour. He's already said that's imminent. It can happen at any moment. That's a repeated refrain of the New Testament, but that's exactly why we pray. We know that that prayer will be answered. We know that it's through our prayers that God will rise and act. So we pray, and and of course, by this I don't mean we just go through the motions. I mean, that's not Daniel here. Sackcloth, ashes, fasting. This is urgent. This is intense. We don't go through the motions. We pray sincerely. We pray fervently because God is sovereign and we know that He uses our prayer to accomplish His purposes. Hang on to that because we're going to come back to that uh, toward the end. But that's just an overarching we pray because God is sovereign. Related to that, secondly, another reason why we pray we pray because God has spoken. We pray because God has spoken. I said a moment ago that Daniel is a model to us as a man of prayer. He's also a model to us as a man of the Word as well. True prayer always is in response to the revelation of God. True prayer is fueled by that reality that God Himself speaks and we speak back to Him in response. 
And we can easily see this here because Daniel's prayer was prompted by his reading of Jeremiah. He was a man who read and studied and contemplated the book of Jeremiah. And not just in a theoretical or abstract way, he took it to heart. He watched carefully for the fulfillment of it in his life. But more than that, in a moment, we'll see that Daniel's prayer also reflects portions of Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and 2 Chronicles. It's clear that Daniel knows the Mosaic Covenant. It's clear that he knows the attributes and nature of God. It's clear that he knows the promises of God. And he knew these things, I'm arguing, not because God poured it into his head, because he knew these things, his prayer reflects that he knew these things because he knew the written word of God. I think John Calvin is insightful here uh, when he says this. Although Daniel was an interpreter of dreams, he was not so elated with confidence or pride as to despise the teaching delivered by other prophets. Daniel was a prophet. God gave him dreams. God gave him visions. God gave him angels to come and talk to him and explain to him. But he didn't sit around and wait for another dream or a vision. He searched the scriptures. If Daniel, the prophet, so searched the scriptures, how much more so should we? But brethren, if we wish to grow in our prayer life, if we wish to see ourselves or our church grow in the fervency of prayer, if we wish to see our prayers answered, we must grow in our love and devotion for the Word of God. It's the Word of God that fuels and fans the flame of godly prayer. Think about it. When, whenever you play a sport or a game, I mean, don't you, don't you play harder when you know the rules and the game plan? And you press on with more urgency when, when the strategy, when the end game is clear in your mind? How many times have you sat down to pray and you just don't know what to pray for? You don't know what to ask for. Well, Daniel is a model to us in this way. We are to pray for the things that God has promised. We are to pray in direct response to the Word of God. We are to open our Bibles and let it instruct us on how to pray. You know, true prayer is not making these outlandish requests and then saying, I have faith that it's going to happen. The true godly prayer is searching the Scriptures to see what God has promised and then bringing them before Him in fervent pleas and petitions. So Scripture stimulates prayer. We hear God and we respond back. And even our prayers themselves are reflective of the wording and promises of Scripture. Daniel's prayer was in response to the fact or, or was, was in yeah, response to the fact that God is a God who speaks. Thirdly, though, why do we pray? We pray because God promises to answer. We pray because God promises to answer. I mentioned before, Daniel's prayer reflects the wording of several other passages of Scripture, and it's only when we, we look at these does kind of a bigger picture of, of Daniel's prayer really come into focus. Um, I want us to look at three passages briefly. You can turn with me there if you like, or I will read them. Uh, Leviticus 26, 32, 2 Chronicles 6, 36, and Jeremiah 29, 10. First we have Leviticus 26, 32. And this is a passage that speaks about the covenantal curses upon Israel if they turn away from the Lord. In verse 32, we read this. God says to them, I myself will devastate the land. And I will scatter you among the nations. Verse 33. And I will make your land 
a desolation. This, of course, speaks of the exile that Daniel was living through. In fact, he mentions the word desolation of the land down in verse 17. But notice, if you skip down to verse 40, a few verses later what the Lord says. But if they confess their iniquity and their treachery that they committed against me, and their heart is humbled. What does he say? Then I will remember my covenant, and I will remember the land. You see, Daniel prays because he hasn't lost hope in the midst of this exile. And he hasn't lost hope because God has said, when you find yourself in that position, you're in exile. Pray to me and I will listen and heal. This is similar to what we see in 2 Chronicles chapter 6. 2 Chronicles is Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple. And in Solomon, excuse me, 2 Chronicles 6, beginning in verse 36, listen to what Solomon prays. He says to God, if Israel sins against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to a land far or near, again, that's what Daniel's living right now. Verse 37, yet, if they turn their heart in the land which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you, saying we have sinned and acted perversely and wickedly, and they pray toward the land which you gave their fathers, then hear from heaven their prayer and their pleas and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer of this place. This gives us insight into why Daniel, we read back in chapter 6, that Daniel prayed three times a day facing Jerusalem. It's because he knew these words right here in 2 Chronicles 6, and he modeled them. Here we see why Daniel's prayer is full of a detailed confession of sin and pleas for mercy. It's because he knew these words. Here we see, um, even in, back in Daniel 9, verse 18, uh, where Daniel says, incline your ear and hear and open your eyes and see our desolation. It's because he's appealing to the very words, the very same thing that Solomon, excuse me, Solomon said right here. God had said, when you find yourself in that position, even under my judgment, I promise to listen and answer when you pray to me. And Daniel believed that. The last passage is Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah 29, beginning in verse 10, we see something very similar. The Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise and bring you back. That's the promise that Daniel knew. The time was up. But then we get this very famous statement. It always makes its way on Christian coffee mugs or wall art. Even though this is specifically for Israel. The Lord says, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Here's the word of the Lord. 70 years and it's over. Here's the word of the Lord. It cannot be broken. A future, welfare, hope. Doesn't that seem like enough for Daniel? Can't he just kind of like sit back, you know, watch his cake rise, wait for the promised restoration? No. Keep reading. Verse 12. What happens then? Then you will call upon me. 
And come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations. And will bring you back to the place which I sent you in exile. See, David, Daniel doesn't just pray because the 70 years were up. He prayed in obedience to the word. He prayed because he knew God's word that said, your restoration is going to come through prayer. And he prayed because of God's promise to hear and answer. Brethren, of course, we have the same promise in the new covenant as well. I don't think you need me to run through the verses to show you where God promises to hear, promises to answer, Promises to listen. It's all over Scripture. But think about what do you want? What, just think about what you want the Lord to do. You want the Lord to give you your daily bread so that you're not impoverished. You're worried about finances. You're worried about income. You're worried about retirement. You're worried about whatever. He's promised to provide those things, but He says, Ask me daily. What do you want the Lord to do? Calm your anxieties, heal uh, your fears, give you peace in the midst of turmoil, comfort you in time of sorrow. God says, ask me. We wish our loved ones who are outside of Christ, that God would grant them repentance that leads to life. Do we wish that the Lord would stem the tide of wickedness in America? Giving us ruling authorities who know the truth and and bear a righteous sword in their government. The Lord says, pray, ask me. It's presumption. It's unbelief to say, well, God's already promised these things, so I don't have to ask. Well, God's already in control of these things. He's already decided them, so I don't need to spend time praying. God's Word makes it clear. God's promises and God's fulfillment of all the good things He gives us comes to us through prayer. Not apart from prayer. We pray because God has promised to hear. He's promised to accomplish His purposes through our prayers. Fourthly, why do we pray? We pray because God is faithful. We pray because God is faithful. I preached an entire sermon on the faithfulness of God back in September. And I labored to show there at that time. Uh, Typically when we think of God's faithfulness, like even when we sing, great is thy faithfulness, we tend to focus on God's faithful to keep his promises to us. Um, But that's only half the equation. Uh, because there's a twofold aspect to the Lord being a faithful God. And that really comes out in this prayer as well. Because the other side of God's faithfulness is that He's always faithful in His threats. And in His warnings and in His judgments. Daniel knows this. Daniel knows that Israel is in the position that they are in because they have broken the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant was not a covenant of eternal life. It foreshadowed and pointed to and pictured eternal life. It paved the way for the covenant of grace to be consummated in Jesus Christ. But at its basic, most fundamental nature, it was a covenant of works, of obedience. God gave Israel the promised land and and said to them, If you obey, I will bless you with all these earthly things, but if you disobey, I will curse you. It's all dependent upon you. Pictures the covenant of works which we are under in Adam. Deuteronomy 28-30 make this clear and emphatic. There's very specific blessings and cursings that are based upon Israel's behavior in the land. Daniel knows this. Daniel knows that they are in exile because they broke the covenant. And that's why he labors to confess Israel's sin and the fact that God is righteous in punishing them. He says in verse 4, 
God, you are the one who keeps covenant. But verse 5, we are the ones who have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled and have turned away from your commandments and rules. Verse 6, we have not listened to your word. Daniel doesn't just jump in and ask for mercy. He acknowledges that God has kept his end of the bargain. He acknowledges that the Lord is faithful even in his punishment. Verse 7, to you belong righteousness, but to us open shame. Last half of verse 14, the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. The Lord is righteous in his exile and in his punishment. Verse 15, again, you delivered us out of the land of Egypt, but we have sinned and done wickedly. You have been faithful to your covenant promises. We have been unfaithful. What we are experiencing is what we deserve. Brethren, it's a model of true confession because you know, there's no effort on Daniel's part to, to, to make excuses, to blame shift, to challenge that God was fair with them or not. He owned up to Israel's sin. And he, and he praises God for His justice and His righteousness even in judgment. As I mentioned before, we may not be part of the Mosaic Covenant, but that covenant was an earthly picture, an earthly drama of the covenant of works that we are all under in Adam. And we're all guilty of breaking. We disobeyed and got cast out of paradise. And God is just and righteous and faithful to His own name and His own nature if He were to cast every single sinful human into the fire of eternal punishment. We, like Daniel, don't deserve any good thing, whether in life or in eternity. We, like Daniel, can't make excuses for our sin. There's there's nothing that we can challenge. God is right. God is just. God is fair. I think this is why in some respect, and, and I say this soberly, I, I say it soberly and even with tears, that we cannot as Christians apologize for the doctrine of hell. It's not really in vogue to talk about hell nowadays. A lot of churches don't like to talk about hell. It's uncomfortable. It's ridiculed by the world. It's difficult to swallow. But brethren, hell is a manifestation of the righteous goodness and purity and justice of God. Hell reinforces to us that He is faithful and that He is holy and that He is perfect. And it reinforces that when God and sinful creation are weighed in the balance, God is always in the right. We are always in the wrong. And our sin is not just a faux pas. It's not just a slip up. It's treason. It's sin with a high hand, a raised fist, an act of rebellion and treachery that we don't even have the concept to comprehend because we have such shallow views of who God is. All we have, like sheep have gone astray our own way. Nobody tells me what to do. We've all smeared and defaced the image of God which we were given, by which we were created. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We failed in our commission that He gave us in creation. And God is faithful in every respect. Even in judgment, He is faithful to punish evildoers. But of course, that's just one side of the equation when we talk about the faithfulness of God. But we have to hear that side of the equation. We have to hear the bad news. Or the good news will be like, "Eh, yeah, that's cool, that's great, awesome, you get to go to heaven. We won't, we won't grasp the gravity of our salvation. 
We must know the good news before we can receive the bad news. And so while Daniel praises the justice of God, even as he suffers the fallout of it, in the same breath, it's the faithful goodness of God that gives him that confidence in prayer. Verse 9, To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. Who is like this? Then in verse 16, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away. You will not be angry forever. Verse 18, For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. If you want justice, you don't have prayer. Literally and figuratively. You want what you deserve? You don't have hope. Your only hope is in what he says right here because of your righteousness, show mercy, not mine. So David sees the faithfulness of God in his judgment, but he sees also the same faithfulness of God as the basis for his plea for mercy and forgiveness. He knows that God is always true to himself, and so he can properly confess without making excuses. But he can also plead for mercy because he knows that God is merciful and will lead out, lead his people out of their misery. And brother, this is a huge, monumental uh, point in this book. Uh, this it's, it's often overlooked. It's huge. It's 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 massive because up until this point in this book, the Israelites have always been the faithful ones. It's the pagans, those monstrous kings, Nebuchadnezzar, those who tyrannize and persecute the people of God. It's been up to this point, God's people good, everyone else bad. But this is all turned upside down right here. Daniel confesses that Israel is in the position that they are in because they are sin- they have sinned and they are being justly punished. In other words, Daniel sees the real problem. The question is, do you see the real problem? What's the real problem? The real problem is not evil kings. It's not President Biden. It's not Putin. It's not evil nations it's not north korea it's not death by flame death by sword death by lion the real problem is not abortion it's not homosexuality it's not transgenderism it's not an evil society it's not in leaders ushering us down to the brink of hell those men those kings those kingdoms they're tools in the hands of god the real problem is that we've sinned against God. The Jews have sinned against God. And it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Daniel sees that's the problem. It comes into focus. It gets his eyes off of what's going on out there. And he realizes, no, no, I need to be right with my Creator with my covenant Lord. And so he hopes in God's mercy. And of course, we know, how can Daniel pray this? We know that God can show mercy and still be just. God can be righteous and still be forgiven because when we come to the New Testament, we see that clearer picture that God put forth His only Son as an atonement for our sins so that being punished, our sins are punished in Christ so His justice is satisfied. And so that His justice being satisfied, He can be righteous, He can be merciful, He can be good and pure by granting us full forgiveness. Thus, what we see here is that Just like in our prayer of confession in our liturgy, Daniel sees that sin is the chief object, obstacle, I should say, the chief obstacle between us and God, and that must be confessed, that must be forgiven before we could ever expect God to speak or act.
The faithfulness of God fuels His prayer and our prayer, both as we confess sin and seek forgiveness. Well, one last thing as we bring this to a conclusion. Why do we pray? We pray because of the greater glory of God. The greater glory of God. What's striking about Daniel's prayer is that it's not just about his needs. It's not about Israel's needs. He concludes in verse 19 by saying, Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not. Why? For your own sake. For your own sake. Not even because of us. For your own sake, because your city and your people are called by your name. At that point in redemptive history, God had attached His name and reputation to Israel and the temple and the land. And so Daniel's ultimate concern is that God would be rightly seen and adored among the watching world. True prayer is always stimulated by our desire for God to be glorified. True prayer is always aimed at the ultimate glory of God. That's why the Lord's Prayer begins with, Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Before it ever expresses our needs. So yes, we we do express our needs, but insofar as they further God's glory... Yes, we do ask ask God to move and act insofar as it manifests His glory. We must never get so caught up in our needs, our own suffering, our sadness, that we forget the greater need of the glory of God. Why? Because don't you know, haven't you learned? Haven't you learned that very bad things can happen to you and to me, to us in this life, but the end result is the greater glory of God? Don't you know that our will and our desires, even good and right desires, don't always lead to the greater glory of God? And we can't see that. Brethren, this is so freeing and so comforting. When we pray prayers that aim at the glory of God, it keeps God as the focus, not ourselves. And there is never a prayer we can be so sure that God will answer than when we pray for Him to be glorified. That's the end for which He created the world. Let me just say, when God is rightly glorified, That is the best and the highest good for each and every one of us. Even if it feels painful in the moment. We always benefit when God is glorified. Always. So Daniel prayed that God would be rightly glorified in his life, in the life of his people. And the same must be true for you and me as well. The well-being of any Christian is bound up in the well-being of the church. We're in this together. Daniel confesses his sin and the sins of the church, uh, Israel at large. Even the sins that he wasn't personally guilty of, he, he, he sees he's in covenant with these other people and he confesses these sins. We too the same way. And we are to pray, Lord, bless and, and forgive and build and protect your church, not because of us, Not because we are worthy, not for our name's sake, but because you are worthy. Because this church has your name attached to it. And we long for the the people, for the nations of this world to see your glory. It's the end of all of our prayers and the end of all of our actions. It's the end of all of our purpose in life. God would be glorified, seen and adored and loved and served for who he rightly is. Well, brethren, as we now bring this all to a conclusion, I want to close just by circling right back around to where we began. I hope you've seen a number of reasons why we pray to stimulate you to prayer. May God use it to create in us an urgency and a fervency for prayer. But I want to circle back around and just ask again that question, if God is sovereign, why do we pray? 
You see, the ultimate answer that we see in this passage is that this, this passage doesn't just give us a model for how we are to pray. It also shows us a little picture of how God answers prayer as well. We're going to see this next week, but in the very next verse, Daniel's prayer is answered while he was still speaking. On one hand, it's answered because we know that within one year of this prayer, the decree to allow the Jews to return to their homeland was issued. But ultimately, as we'll see next week, the end of the exile, the rebuilding of the temple was not really the point of Jeremiah's prophecy. That wasn't really the answer to the prayer. That's not what Jeremiah was speaking of. Rather, the answer to Daniel's prayer comes in a chain of events culminating in the incarnation of Christ, atonement for sin, eternal, true purification of the holy place, and restoration to a land far greater than Tel Aviv, the eternal promised land of God. In other words, Daniel's prayer is answered, but not in the way that he expects. It's answered in a far greater and more astounding way than he could ever imagine. And so we can look at this and say, aren't we glad that Daniel just didn't say, 70 years, he's sovereign, I'm going to take that to the bank, I don't really need to worry about it. No, because Daniel's prayer illustrates to us the, the extent of God's sovereignty. The extent that God is able to do far above what we ask and what we think. We think we know God's sovereignty. When we see it and we can figure it out, we don't. Because God's, uh, Daniel's prayer leads to a greater revelation of God's spoken word. It leads to a greater answer to the cries of God's people. It leads to a greater manifestation of God's faithfulness and justice and in forgiveness. And it leads to a greater manifestation of the glory of God. The preeminent demonstration of His glory in the death of His Son. Let us not think that we have things figured out. Let us go to the Lord in prayer knowing that He is able to do far above whatever we ask or think because His ways, His plans, His means are far greater than we can ever see. May God give us grace to receive these words and stir in us a heart for prayer even today. Let's pray.